NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Clocks went back an hour last night, but we are right on time. In this hour, we hear from Israelis calling for a prisoner swap with Hamas to free hostages from the October 7th attack. The only way to bring them back safe is to have a deal. If the army will go to freedom, a big percentage of them will be dead. We also look at the Biden administration's priorities in its response to the war. And school boards are getting more partisan. We dive into a heated race in Pennsylvania. Plus, a study found that some female frogs will play dead to avoid mating. It's Sunday, November 5th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Palestinian officials say airstrikes struck a refugee camp overnight in central Gaza, killing dozens of people. NPR's Ruth Sherlock says this is the third such camp to have been hit by airstrikes in Gaza in recent days. The Gaza refugee camp is made up of residential buildings, and residents there say several have been flattened in this attack. Photographs shared by the Reuters news agency show dazed civilians searching for survivors amid the rubble. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled Gaza City, where Israel is focusing its offensive, crowding instead into the central and southern parts of the tiny Gaza Strip. Many believed this refugee camp was meant to be in this safer area. The Israeli military did not immediately respond to NPR's requests for comment. Also on Sunday, the Palestinian Red Crescent Rescue Services said airstrikes had leveled a building near the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, another strike close to medical facilities. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. The head of the World Food Program has issued an urgent plea for expanded humanitarian access to Gaza. Speaking to the BBC from the Rafah border crossing, Cindy McCain says parents in the territory don't know whether they can feed their children today and whether they will survive to see tomorrow. The scale of human suffering is something that's very hard to believe. And that is why the humanitarian community really does need to get in there and get in there quickly. Nothing can ever prepare you for what you see in situations like this. And this is not my first time seeing things like this, but it does make any difference. We need to get in. The humanitarian community needs to get things in. We need to get our trucks in. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is now in Cyprus, part of regional conversations about the Israel-Hamas conflict and delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza. Blinken earlier today traveled to the occupied West Bank for talks with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Ukraine has struck a Russian shipyard in occupied Crimea with long-distance missiles. NPR's Nathan Rott reports it's the latest in a series of attacks Ukraine has launched in Russian-held territory. Russia's armed forces confirmed that a new warship was damaged in the missile strike on one of Eastern Europe's largest shipyards. Yuri Ignat, a spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force, spoke to local media about the attack, quoting the Air Force commander. He said it's like we used a scalpel, Ignat says. That's how accurate the attack was, adding that it should be a message to Western countries about what kind of weapon was used. Ukraine is keen to demonstrate how effectively it's using Western weapons as questions about continued funding for Ukraine's war effort are coming up in the U.S. and other countries. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Kiev. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Daylight saving time ended at 2 this morning, and some scientists say we should stick with standard time. According to research out of Brigham and Women's Hospital, standard time is better for our bodies. Rebecca Robbins is a scientist with the hospital's Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders. She says we often shortchange our sleeping hours during daylight saving time by staying up too late, and that can lead to poorer health outcomes. If we were to pick, we would pick permanent standard time because that allows us to be better aligned with our biological clock and the pattern of light and darkness and where that's situated in a 24-hour day. The U.S. adopted daylight saving time in the mid-20th century. Recent attempts in Congress to change it have been unsuccessful. The Hingham Educators Association is calling on the district and superintendent to enact additional safety protocols Last week, a substitute teacher was arrested during the school day on trespassing and other charges. Among other measures, the association suggests improving communication across schools about underperforming substitutes. The teachers also say they were disturbed by the superintendent's delay in sharing the news with the community. A 30-year-old Dorchester woman has been arrested in connection with the fatal stabbing of another woman on Boston Common this summer. Police say Alyssa Parch stabbed 21-year-old Jezriana Shepard of South Boston near the Park Street MBTA station. Parch will be arraigned in Suffolk Superior Court. Bow Market in Somerville's Union Square is expanding. The Boston Business Journal reports that the boutique shopping destination is adding 6,000 square feet of space on Somerville Avenue. That space will feature three retail stores and two restaurants. Last night, the Celtics beat the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets 124-114. to The Bruins lost to the Red Wings 5-4 to last night. This afternoon in Foxborough, the Patriots face the Washington Commanders. It's 48 degrees in Boston with increasing sunshine today and a high around 60. Lows in the mid-30s overnight. You can expect mostly cloudy skies tomorrow. Monday's highs in the low 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for being here with us today. It's been a month since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's ground operations and deadly bombing campaigns in Gaza continue, and Israel is still under rocket fire. We're going to begin today's show looking at one of the looming questions in this conflict. What will it take to release the hundreds of hostages taken captive last month during the brutal Hamas attack on Israel? Many Israelis are now calling for a sweeping prisoner exchange. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from downtown Tel Aviv. This is Israeli military headquarters in central Tel Aviv, where Israel's war cabinet is conducting the war on Gaza. And it's also where Israelis are rallying in support of the about 240 captives held hostage by Hamas inside Gaza. Here's a bus driver beeping his support. One man has been sitting outside Israeli military headquarters every day. My name is Shmuel Brodach. My three grandchildren and my daughter-in-law are now in Gaza. His grandchildren in Gaza are 4, 8, and 10 years old. They're held hostage along with other children, parents, grandparents, Israeli soldiers, and foreign nationals. So far, Hamas has released four hostages through Qatar's mediation. 
the U.S. says talks are now focused on securing a significant pause in hostilities to allow for a large hostage release. The only way to bring them back safe is to have a deal. If the army will go to freedom, a big percentage of them will be dead. I don't want to get my grandchildren back as corpses. Israeli ground troops did free one hostage, but Hamas is believed to be holding many hostages in underground chambers, where it would be hard for soldiers to rescue them. So what would a hostage release deal look like? Hamas has called for a big prisoner exchange. Israel says no such deal is on the table. But there is growing support for one in Israel. Brodach holds a poster that says, all in exchange for all, meaning Israel releasing all its Palestinian prisoners and Hamas releasing all its hostages. Brodach supports any kind of deal that brings the hostages home. That is the only victory that can be done. Israel was defeated. I want the Israeli authorities to pay any price that is needed to get them back now. There is precedent for a prisoner swap. Twelve years ago, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed to release more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners for a kidnapped Israeli soldier. A prisoner swap now could be even bigger, Israel releasing all its Palestinian prisoners, about 6,700 inmates, being held on what are called security offenses, including hundreds serving life sentences for the killing of Israeli civilians and soldiers over the decades. Across the street from military headquarters is an office building where there's a massive advocacy effort by the main group representing family and friends of the Israeli hostages. They've been careful not to adopt an official position on how Israel should secure their release. You know, we're not busy telling government or any other officials how to do that. Shiri Grossbard has a colleague held hostage. We just want them home. When troops entered Gaza, the families demanded an immediate meeting with Netanyahu. They worried the ground operation could endanger the hostages. Now, the idea of a prisoner exchange is being touted even by a hawkish former defense minister and by a growing number of the families of hostages. Of course. Definitely. 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 Shelly and Malki no, no Shemtov have a son, Omer, who just turned 21 in Hamas captivity. Yes. Even if it means, like, all of the prisoners. All of all, the prisoners, all, yes. On both sides. On both sides, yes, definitely. A recent Israeli opinion poll found nearly two-thirds support a prisoner exchange. Another poll found split opinions, but no overwhelming opposition. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Yochanan Plesner runs the nonpartisan Israel Democracy Institute, which conducted the surveys. We have never dealt with such a situation of so many Israeli hostages, so many youngsters, kids that are held in captivity. Time is of the essence. So I think Israelis will be willing to go very far in order to get them released, short of one important goal. It's not instead of dismantling Hamas. One Israeli family has been outspoken in opposing a prisoner exchange. Emunah Nisim Libman has a brother held in Gaza. In a video, she says, I miss my brother with all my heart, but we know that a ceasefire and prisoner exchange are destructive for our children's future. She says it could lead to another October 7th-style attack. One of the released prisoners in Israel's last swap with Hamas 12 years ago is now the head of Hamas in Gaza, whom Israel accuses of helping mastermind last month's attack. Some Israelis we meet outside military headquarters have their own proposal, Michal Barkai and Sarah Tal. You, you will yes. let them go from the prison to Gaza, and then we'll kill them in Gaza. 
we continue the war. This weekend, family and friends of the hostages demonstrated outside army headquarters. Chanting now, 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 saying the release of hostages should be the first priority. Tsipi Khaitovsky has friends whose siblings are being held in Gaza. You know, the government promises that they'll destroy Hamas. That's not enough. The number one task now is to first bring home our people from Gaza. It's unclear how Israel can pursue its two goals, getting hostages released safely and eviscerating the very group holding them. What is clear is that many Israelis are open to any kind of deal with Hamas to secure the captives' freedom. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. We're going to turn now to the view from Washington on this with White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Aisha. So there have been a lot of developments this past week. President Biden called for temporary limited pauses for humanitarian reasons. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu immediately rejected that call. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken was just in the region trying to head off a wider conflict. What can you tell us about the administration's current stance on this situation? You know, at this point, there are really three main priorities for the White House. Uh, I would say, first and foremost, the administration sees Israel's right to defend itself and supporting that right as really its guiding principle. Uh, The White House has been calling on Congress to provide an additional $14 billion in military aid. Secondly, the administration is working to get additional humanitarian aid into Gaza and to get people out, and that includes the hostages that Daniel was mentioning. Um, you know, to your point also, Aisha, they have called for temporary pauses that could potentially, in their view, allow that to happen. And then I would say the third point that really this administration is focused on is containing this conflict, ensuring that it does not spread beyond the Gaza Strip. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was meeting with Arab leaders yesterday. He was, in fact, in the West Bank even earlier today. And Blinken said that, you know, all of these Arab leaders want to ensure lasting peace and security in the region. Uh, But I will also say that standing right next to Blinken yesterday, you heard the Jordanian and Egyptian foreign ministers call for an immediate ceasefire. And that is just, frankly, not where the Biden administration is. Um, A senior administration official briefed reporters uh, Friday evening and flatly said that a ceasefire is not the word to use. The official said that ultimately that would come down to when Israelis feel secure and ensure that something like what happened on October 7th could not happen again. There are some Democrats criticizing Israel's action. Um, I would imagine that is putting pressure on President Biden. Yeah, I mean, the message that we have been hearing from the White House, I would say, and even in fact we heard from the podium in the White House press briefing room, is that the administration is not drawing red lines for Israel. Um, But I will say also in the last week, you have seen more vocal criticism from some Democratic lawmakers. I'm thinking of someone like Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, who called for a ceasefire. Uh, You know, at the same time, there are also internal frustrations bubbling up. Uh, Hundreds of USAID staffers have signed an anonymous letter pushing for an immediate ceasefire. There are also reports of dissent at the State Department. And, you know, I, I would say within the administration, Aisha, I have heard myself from people who have reached out that there are kind of a... I will say internal debates about the morality of this wholehearted support for Israel. You know, you look at the polling, the Democratic Party as a whole is not lockstep behind what the Biden administration appears to be doing. You do see some internal debate amongst Democrats, particularly among younger voters. And you're going to naturally see some of that same division that you see in polling uh, in the administration itself. And, you know, yesterday there was 
massive protest in D.C., for example, calling for a ceasefire. And, and I will say, you know, this is something unusual to see under a Democratic president are folks who, in fact, some of those folks at the protests are people who, in fact, voted for Joe Biden. It's very different than some of those protests you saw, you know, going back in the early 2000s under the Iraq war under a Republican administration. Uh, since the start of the war in Gaza, immigration has sort of fallen off of national headlines, but a group of Democratic mayors in D.C. Um, this past week were asking the federal government for more help and resources. How do you see immigration factoring into uh, our current politics? Well, I asked Roy Teixeira about this. He's a longtime political demographer. And he points out that when you look at polling, there appears to be widespread dissatisfaction with how President Biden is currently handling immigration. You can convince people your party's for a fair, humane immigration system that's under control. I think that will be to your benefit. But I think Democrats have a steep hill to climb. At you know, these point, Democratic mayors have said that they don't have the resources to deal with the migrants who've been arriving in their cities. The Biden administration uh, has asked Congress for additional money to deal with this situation, but it's not clear that's going to come through. So a bunch of key elections coming up on Tuesday. Which ones are you watching? Okay, well, I will keep it to one because I know we don't have loads of time, Aisha, and that is Ohio. I think Ohio is a real preview for how abortion rights might factor into 2024. Ohioans will be voting directly on an amendment around abortion. It is, to my understanding, the only explicit abortion issue on the ballot this year. It could really give voters a sense of how critical this issue might be in the 2024 election. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Thank you so much, Asma. Always good to talk to you. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about half an hour here on 90.9 WBUR, writer-director Raven Jackson discusses her new film, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you would like information about attending, then please visit wbur.org slash open meetings. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for a nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Palestinian officials say airstrikes struck a refugee camp overnight in central Gaza, killing and injuring dozens of people. This as protesters around the world are calling for a ceasefire. Secretary of State Antony Blinken early today traveled by armored motorcade to the occupied West Bank for a meeting with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. In Ukraine, the head of the European Union's executive branch visited Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, urging the government there to continue reforms as Ukraine pushes for EU membership. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We make an effort now to understand where the Israel-Hamas war may move next. Israel's military is about one week into a ground invasion of Gaza. Its forces have spent close to a month bombarding the area. It's in response to a Hamas attack on Israel. Steve Inskeep of NPR's Morning Edition spent the past week in the Middle East and has been working to understand Israel's endgame. Thank you for being with us, Steve. Glad to be here, Aisha. Thanks so much. So how have you come to understand how the Israeli military and government are defining victory? It seems to me they have refined the objective slightly. Israel initially said, the Israeli authorities said, they must destroy Hamas. And we've heard in our reporting around this region how hard that would be. It is defined by Israel as a terrorist group, but Hamas also has a political ideology with widespread Palestinian support. You can't just kill a few leaders or fighters and think it'll go away. I spoke with an Israeli military strategist who put the goal in a more nuanced way. He said the goal was to depose Hamas, get them out of government in Gaza, not necessarily kill the last fighter, but degrade them to the point where they're incapable of running anything. Well, I mean, is that realistic? Well, it's realistic to think that Israeli forces can take the territory in Gaza because Israel has one of the strongest and best equipped and most effective militaries in the world, and they've operated for a long time in that region, and their tanks are already in. But their plans could be disrupted by other enemies who could widen this war, or Israel could conceivably be stopped by friends, such as the United States and others, who don't want the blowback of the many, many, many civilian casualties in Gaza or refugees coming out of Gaza or other potential or very real problems. So then how might Israel address these potential roadblocks to its plans? Well, they're trying to deter and contain enemies with the help of the United States. The U.S. has sent aircraft carriers to the region as a kind of show of force. And there's also some live fire going on. We went to Israel's northern border a few days ago and listened in the darkness as Israeli forces traded fire with Hezbollah, the militia that is just north of Israel in Lebanon. Uh, However, neither side seems to want full-scale warfare there yet. An Israeli military strategist told me, quote, we assess modestly that Hezbollah is not interested in a full-scale escalation. So that seems kind of okay from the Israeli military perspective for now, but the larger challenge may come from Israel's friends, the concern about civilian casualties. The U.S., of course, pushed for a humanitarian pause just this past week when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was here. I mean, the Israeli government, though, seemed to to reject that out of hand, especially because of the, the hostages, is what Benjamin Netanyahu said. Can they disregard world opinion entirely? 
Not entirely. This senior officer I spoke with admits, quote, we understand that the international community cannot allow the situation to go beyond some threshold. And so you do see Israel making gestures like letting in some humanitarian aid or opening a corridor out of the encircled Gaza City yesterday very, very briefly. So Israel sometimes makes adjustments, but they are broadly continuing their campaign. Uh, so suppose Israel does succeed in removing Hamas from power. What happens then? Israeli authorities have admitted this week they don't know. Ron Dermer, who's an observer to Israel's very important war cabinet, said that discussion was premature in an interview on NPR. Uh, the military strategist I spoke with told me that Israel does not itself want to control Gaza after the war. Uh, it's not clear that any Palestinian group is ready to try that. The Israeli military talks of some future combination of local and international forces that could run Gaza, but they do not know at this point who would be willing. NPR's Steve Inskeep is in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. For more coverage and analysis and for differing views on the conflict, go to npr.org slash Mideast Updates. Across the country, people are casting ballots for local and state races, including school boards. In northeastern Pennsylvania, what a few years ago was a fairly nonpartisan school board contest has turned into a competitive and downright combative race. From WLVR in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Sarah Mueller has more. Hey, folks. Hello. Do you guys live in Southern Lehigh? Yes. We're running for school board, okay? Appreciate your support if you're registered. Have fun trick-or-treating tonight, okay? It's Halloween in downtown Coopersburg, a borough nestled in the Lehigh Valley, and Duck Durham is handing out candy to trick-or-treaters, young and old. Whether you're a Republican or not, the candy's free. So have some candy. Durham's one of 10 candidates vying for one of the five seats on the Southern Lehigh School Board. It's a race in a swing district in a swing state. And at stake is the chance to dramatically reshape district policy. Durham's slate of candidates have dubbed themselves the true Republicans. They've got the endorsement of the county Republican committee and signed a pledge that in part is aimed at a curriculum review to keep, quote, woke politics out of the classroom. That led to criticism that they wanted to censor school libraries. Here's Durham on local conservative talk show host Bobby Gunther Walsh's program. We're not book manners. I, I believe in free speech, but I don't think pornography should be available to children in the schools. Durham's group says they want to restrict students from using bathrooms that align with their gender identity and inform parents when they ask to go by different gender pronouns. If you believe that a policy that keeps secret from parents is appropriate, then we are fully against that policy. Emily Gayman, who served on the school board here for eight years, is running for re-election. She's also a Republican, but... Being endorsed by the Republican Party at the county and local level was contingent upon signing that pledge. I chose not to sign that pledge. So Gayman is running on the Democratic slate, with four moderate Republicans and one Democrat. She believes students have a right to privacy at school. If there is a policy that exists where a child is told, if you talk to an adult about anything, your parent will immediately be called. That does more harm than good. These kinds of debates might sound familiar. Schools sometimes become front lines in, in national political battles. That's University of Pennsylvania professor Dan Hopkins. 
He says the often sleepy school board races of yesteryear are quickly becoming a thing of the past, fueled in part by the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID led to a genuinely important shift in the sense that school boards were making very, very meaningful decisions about whether to open or close. And many parents had the experience of suddenly having their kids in their houses. And oftentimes they could hear the instruction. Hopkins says what's happening in the Lehigh Valley is just another example of how local politics have become nationalized. Local candidates take cues from national groups focused on the role of parents in school, like the far-right Moms for Liberty and its left-leading counterpart, Stop Moms for Liberty. These suddenly nationally kind of charged symbols infuse a local political debate. Christine Slifer, who has two small children in the district, says she can't escape the tension in the race. I'm in some local groups on Facebook, um, groups that have nothing to do with politics but have stuff to do with the school or the town, you know, and I'm in there just to kind of find out what's going on. A lot of it gets brought into there, um, and it's very divisive. She says she's frustrated by the local coverage. It wasn't even focusing on how great Southern Lehigh is for academics or any of our achievements. It was all these hot-button topics. and it doesn't need to be like, it doesn't need to be like that. It just, and I just don't think that's um, positive for our kids. The fierce competition for unpaid positions on Lehigh Valley school boards shows how political these races have become. Voters will soon decide what issues most resonated with them. But the results either way are unlikely to break the political entrenchment on both sides, with the kids caught in the middle. That was Sarah Mueller in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We often hear about juvenile crime from the point of view of officials, activists, or other adults. But what do kids say about it? I went to selling drugs, and I I liked the money. It was me doing right for myself, doing right for my family, being able to get your mother some money. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, host Michelle Martin speaks with young people held at juvenile detention centers in Maryland. Tune in to your local public radio station with your phone's web browser, a smart speaker, or a radio. In the rolling mountains of Northern Virginia, Luray Caverns are celebrating the 50th anniversary of their designation as a national natural landmark. It's also home to the largest musical instrument in the world. Reporter Alan Gafinski takes us there. Good morning. All right, is it cold down here? Uh, it's about 54 degrees high humidity, so it'll be... On a brisk fall morning, I meet up with the engineers who maintain this renowned musical instrument. The Great Stalag Pipe Organ. Oh, wow. Right into it, just walking down the stairs, and then all of a sudden, you're in a cave. To get there, we climb down a narrow staircase and suddenly emerge into the most extensive cave system in the eastern U.S. We wind through dazzling tunnels, carved out by water over millions of years, and we make our way through massive crystalline limestone chambers. Around us are towering, dramatic golden rock formations. Oh, wow, this is wild. Pools of glassy, smooth water reflect the stalactite formations above. It creates the illusion of an underwater stone city. My brain doesn't know what to do with this. This spectacular (laughs) trek into the depths of the cave 
brings us to a colossal room known as the Cathedral, the heart of the great stalagpipe organ. Someone presses a hidden button, and the cathedral comes alive with bewitching, almost otherworldly melodies that linger, reverberating in the still, damp air. We're inside the organ right now because all the music comes from stalactites about three and a half acres around us. Larry Moyer began working at Lou Ray Caverns 42 years ago as a teenager and is now the lead engineer of the great stalagpipe organ. It's a mashup of the words stalactite and pipe organ. I learned from Mr. Sprinkle, the inventor. Leland Sprinkle came through the caverns with his son on his fifth birthday. They would take a little rubber mallet and play a little song on the stalactites, and he got the idea of building an organ. After years of work and experimentation, in 1957, the organ debuted to the delight of tourists. It has been chiming for tour groups ever since. Besides Shenandoah, it also plays classical tunes. It's really a percussion instrument. Each key on the organ, when pressed, sends an electrical impulse to trigger a small hammer which strikes a stalactite, causing it to vibrate and give off a musical note. With the humidity and the environment down here, there's a lot of maintenance to the instrument. There's miles and miles of cabling down here for it. The electronics we build ourselves. There's no uh, great stalactite organ store, so we can't go buy parts for it. For Moyer and his team, it's a labor of love. Moyer has devoted decades to the great stalagpipe organ, but knows he will have to pass on that responsibility. Two younger apprentices, Stephanie Beam and Ben Caton, are both soaking up as much knowledge from Moyer as they can. It's a lot to learn, but I'm glad we can keep it going. I've been here about 18 years. I'm still learning. It's fun, honestly. You get to say, hey, I work on the Great Stalagpipe Organ. Nobody else can say that. It's still surreal that we get to be a part of it, preserving it for future generations. Larry can't retire till we know everything. <laughs> oh yeah, it's gonna be around a long time. Yeah. <laughs> on the 50th anniversary of Luray Cavern's designation as a national natural landmark, the engineers responsible for the enchanting sounds that fill the ancient halls remain dedicated to keeping the music alive. For NPR News, I'm Alan Gofinski in Luray, Virginia. Eyedrops sold at Target, Walmart, and CVS are the focus of a new national warning and product recall. The Food and Drug Administration is urging people to stop buying and using more than two dozen over-the-counter products due to a risk of infection that could result in partial vision loss or blindness. Gary Novak is a clinical professor of ophthalmology and vision science at the University of California Davis School of Medicine. He's been following the recall and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to talk to you today. So this is the second eyedrop-related recall this year. Uh, the first happened back in February. So, so what, is, what is going on with this? Right, so the first uh, one in February had to do with two issues, both a problem at the manufacturer and that that product 
was inappropriately made. The more recent ones are due to some unsanitary conditions and bacteria found as it's being manufactured. And these recent ones are eye drops that are sold at Target, Walmart, and so some major places, right? That's correct. And so I, I want to emphasize to to your listeners and to all patients is that this does not apply to prescription drugs. These are just over-the-counter products. Are these eye drops for dry eyes? I believe that all the ones recalled recently are just for dry eye. They're not for redness. What is it about eye drops in particular that are of concern, whereas you might not be as concerned about, you know, buying some over-the-counter cough medicine or, you know, cold medicine or something? Our current regulations on eye drops is that they all need to be sterile, and that's because the eye doesn't have some of the protections like an acidic stomach that could kill certain bad things. So whenever you put a a drop in the eye, we want it to be sterile because it's going to prevent the risk of contamination. You know that when you, you cry, your nose runs, and that's because the tears run down into the nose. They can then be absorbed into other parts of the body. So there's less protection for things in the eyes getting to the rest of the body. And so that's why sterility is an important concern. Is the FDA inspecting at a level that you think is enough to make sure that these eye drops are not contaminated or not potentially contaminated? So during the pandemic, the FDA did not inspect. Uh, There was a, a travel ban, as I understand it. And so I think what we're seeing now, we know that, for example, in 2022, there was an inspection of the facility, the one that ended up in this this terrible occurrences that we heard about in February. Probably what's happening is there is an increase, at least relative to pandemic times, in the number of inspections. And on these inspections, FDA is finding, again, unsanitary conditions in these products. Okay. Well, these are things I had never thought about, so I'm really glad that I'm talking to you. So what should someone do if they're worried about the eye drops they've been using? For these over-the-counter tier products, I mean, those who have access can go to FDA's website. Uh, They also can ask the pharmacist. These products that have been recalled should have been removed from the shelf, but it is possible someone might have purchased these a while ago There are a number of other things patients should do in general, which is if it's a product that is only for one use and they know that because they're labeled single use, they're they're little, we call them plastic squeezy things. uh, They shouldn't try to reuse these products. They're, They're not designed to be sterile for more than one use. That's Gary Novak of the UC Davis School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A family from Plymouth stuck in Gaza amid escalating violence has been unable to cross the border into Egypt because of a customs error. A relative of the family told WBUR that the names of the family's three children were not on a list of people permitted to leave Gaza, the family staying in Gaza until the mix-up is resolved. A Medway family, who'd also been in Gaza, was able to leave the country last week. Tomorrow afternoon on Beacon Hill, the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Abuse and Recovery holds a hybrid public hearing on bills dealing with youth behavioral health. Among the proposals, establishing a commission to study risks and best practices for children using social media and listing the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline information on student ID cards. 
Last night in the Celtics' victory over the Nets, Jason Tatum landed in the record books. He became the youngest player in Celtics franchise history to reach 10,000 career points. He also became the 10th youngest player in NBA history to reach that mark. And additionally, he became the first NBA player ever to score 10,000 points and make 1,000 three-point shots before turning 26. 52 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, a high around 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with What Makes It Great with Rob Capolo, exploring songs by Joni Mitchell and Carol King. November 11th at Jordan Hall, CelebritySeries.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden pointed out how important it is to live your life so that you never, ever get mentioned on our show. You know how bad a first date is when it becomes a news story? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. It's too late for all the people we'll be talking about on this week's news quiz. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's officially November, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Jim Brecker of Whalen, Massachusetts, and it was a nasty one. I said the time 629 on a digital clock, ignoring the colon, also reads 629 upside down. And I asked, how many times in a day can a digital clock, ignoring the colon, read the same right side up as upside down? Well, the quote-unquote obvious answer was 54, which is 27 times each 12-hour period. But the actual answer is 58. That's because on the date that clocks are set back an hour to go from daylight saving to standard time, which they did this morning, the clock goes through 101, 111, 121, and 151 a.m. twice. So the answer is 58. Oh, wow. Okay, so people, look, look. I just want to say, direct all your uh, angry mail to Will Shorts, okay, (laughs) at the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) Because this might have been one of the hardest puzzles ever. There were only two correct entries, two out of 500. And we have one of them with us. Marcus Ewart of El Cerrito, California, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Marcus. Thanks so much, Aisha. So did you realize that daylight savings time thing, or did you just happen to put in 58, or, you, like, you kind of messed up the number? <laughs> <laughs> I did <laughs> I did realize the daylight savings time thing. Originally, I was thinking the answer seemed a little straightforward or a little bit too mathy, and then I realized that the day of the puzzle was going to be the clock back day, and that felt like the right amount of trickiness for the weekly puzzle. <laughs> oh, wow. So you knew it. So you were thinking about this. Oh, my goodness. Look. 
I know some people going to be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't like that. <laughs> All right, Marcus, are you ready to play the puzzle? Uh, yes, I am. All right, take it away, Will. All right, Marcus and Aisha, I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence conceals the name of a well-known U.S. city phonetically. For example, if I said, the lumberjacks unlaced their boots, you would say Jackson, as in the capital of Mississippi, because that's hidden phonetically inside lumberjacks unlaced. So here we go. These all work phonetically. Number one is, I'd like you to meet my amiable sister. Miami, Florida. Exactly. Number two, the CPR pro gave Diane a Heimlich maneuver. Here, here it is again. The CPR pro yeah. gave Diane a Heimlich maneuver. It's in California. Anaheim. Anaheim is right. Did anyone who's sincere accuse me of doing that? Syracuse? Syracuse, New York is right. The hockey player got semi-pro vocational training. A provo? Provo, Utah, good. A neighbor gave Thoreau an oak tree. Roanoke. Roanoke, Virginia. The MC led the Chanteuse onto the stage. It's in Arizona. Uh -huh. The MC led the Chanteuse onto the stage. Tucson. Tucson, is it? The pet owner would on tiptoe lead obedient dogs downstairs. Toledo? Toledo, is it? And here's your last one. In the end, it was the whole shebang Gorbachev lost. Ooh. Shabokin? <laughs> Not quite. That sounds like someplace in Michigan, but that's... Here it is once more. In the end, it was the whole shebang Gorbachev lost. Ooh. Oh, Banger, Banger Maine. Banger. Oh, yes. Banger yes. yes. Maine, you yes. got it. <laughs> Steven, all my Stephen King stories came back. How do you feel? Uh, I feel good. feel relieved. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a great job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Marcus, what member station do you listen to? Listen to KQED. That's Marcus Ewart of El Cerrito, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Will. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We have a two-week challenge because next week we're going to be playing with some special surprise guests. Y'all are going to like it. You're going to like it. So stay tuned for a new deadline for this two-week challenge. But first, Will, tell us what is the challenge? Yes, it's a creative challenge. Name a geographical place. Then describe it acrostically using the letters in its name. For example, Albany could be described acrostically as administering legislative business at New York. The place can be anywhere in the world, the U.S. or abroad. Entries will be judged on originality, sense, naturalness of wording, elegance, and overall effect. You may submit up to three entries. And the person who sends the best entry, in my opinion, We'll play Puzzle on the Air with me in two weeks. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. You can do up to three entries this time. Our deadline for entries is Wednesday, November 15th at 3 p.m. 
So pay attention. It's not on a Thursday this time. The deadline for entries is Wednesday, November 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Ever felt the impulse to ghost that person who keeps hitting on you and just can't take a hint? You know, just never talk to them again, just disappear? Frogs have taken that strategy to a new level. A new study shows that some female frogs will play dead to avoid mating. Usually they are laying on the side and uh, stretching arms and legs, like stiffly from the body. So that's the typical position. That's Dr. Caroline Dietrich. She's a behavioral ecologist at the University of Veterinary Medicine, Vienna. She observed the behavior for the first time while monitoring mating patterns. I had uh, one male and two females in a box, and I let them be there for an hour undisturbed. And I saw in one video that the female appeared dead. So I got a bit worried that something happened. Scientists have called playing dead tonic immobility. It's one of the strategies females use to avoid mating, along with rotating their body or letting out a call to tell males they're not interested. That's because mating is brutal in the species she's studying. These frogs are known as explosively breeding frogs. They have a very short mating season. Male frogs in this species get so aggressive that the females can fear for their lives. Usually there's uh, more males than females in the breeding aggregation. That means that males are fighting to get access to the females. And sometimes a lot of males can cling to one female which leads to the drowning of the female. Dietrich notes it's just a reflex for the females. It seems it's not a conscious decision of feigning death, like I don't like these males, so I, I feign death or something like that, but more like a survival tactic or strategy. So the males, sometimes they still cling to the females, even if they feign death or, or are immobile, and sometimes they let go. Dietrich doesn't know if other species play dead to avoid mating. We've all heard of possums, but that's to avoid a predator. But I think that when species have similar selection pressures, like big breeding aggregations, more males than females, these short uh, breeding time, I think these selection pressures could lead to the evolution of these behavior in other species too. So male frogs, when you see a female playing dead, maybe make a ribbit? or pivot to another mate. In Raven Jackson's new film, you'll hear a lot, but not much talking. And what you see, lingering emotional scenes that jump back and forth in time, tell the story of a pair of Black sisters growing up in the South. Joy, fear, heartbreak, love all set to a soundtrack of crickets, rainstorms, birdsong, and the crunch of soil under feet. Raven Jackson wrote and directed All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. First, uh, can you introduce us to the two sisters that we follow in this film, Mackenzie and Josie? And we really see a lot of Mackenzie in the movie. She's the anchor. 
Yeah, so these are two sisters that we see at various ages. They share a very close bond, and we see that bond evolve throughout the film. And what made you want to focus on sisterhood? It was very organic coming to this, wanting to focus on community, on love, on family, and also change in our lives, the seasons of our lives, and how that could be reflected in these relationships evolved into really having this central relationship between these two sisters. So yeah, it was really an organic process getting here. It's a beautifully shot film and the aesthetics and 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 the sounds, but at what point did you decide, I don't want a lot of dialogue? I'm very interested in the ways we communicate without words, through gesture, through silence, through, you know, how we hold someone for how long. You know, I trust the body's ability to communicate, and I that's explored in this film. And also, you know, I have a deep reverence for sound, for very experiential and evocative soundscapes, and I wanted to lean into that with this film. It's not a dialogue-heavy film, but... There are a lot of sounds that are speaking, you know, that are telling the story and that are giving a lot of layers of context to what's happening in the film. Setting this in Mississippi, what did that mean to you? And like, why set the movie in Mississippi? There came a day where I came across Bill Ferris's photographs of Roseville Church. And these are photographs of the church and the, the congregation in the late 60s, early 70s. And when I saw these photographs, I was like, there's no way this church is still standing, but I still sent that cold email. And long story short, it was, and it's just such a special place. And my mother is from Mississippi. I use my grandma's photo albums a lot as references for production design, for costumes. And so it was really beautiful conversation I was having with my own lineage as I was making the film. Well, can I ask you about one scene in particular when Mackenzie is a toddler and she's taking a bath with her mom, Evelyn, and there's this thunderstorm happening. And, I, you know, when I was growing up, you were taking your life into your hands. If you dared to touch any water during a thunderstorm, you know, my grandma, mama, <laughs> you were supposed to unplug everything, sit in the living room and quiet in the dark because the Lord was working. My big mom would have lost her mind. You in the water, if you don't get out of there. (laughs) No, you know, that's interesting. In the creation of it, it was like, you know, it's it's thundering, but we don't don't see any lightning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so no lightning. It was no lightning. Okay, I don't know if that would have worked with my big mom. I don't know if that would have flown. But another thing that I I noticed throughout the film is Mackenzie and Josie's hairstyles and like the way Mm -hmm. they change. Yeah, no, I love that you noticed that. Yeah, so with Pamela Shepard, who was the costume designer, and Ikea Powell, who was the hair department head, we talked a lot about the differences of Mac and Josie and also, you know, how they compare and contrast. Josie, you know, she would dress up more. She would like to have her hair out more. You know, she would maybe wear more lipstick than Mac would. And Mac was more relaxed in a lot of ways, a little bit more tomboyish. Mm -hmm. And the plaits were something beautiful because it really, you see these plaits when it's young Mac, Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. it's late teens Mac, Mm -hmm. and then it evolves into twists. Yes, yes, uh, a twist, yeah. mm -hmm, That you see her hair in. And then when she's like in her early 
30s. You see it more where it's twists, but they're styled. Yeah, And then the oldest version of Mac, who's played by Zainab Jaw, we see it where it's just one braid. And so thinking through how to evolve her hairstyles as she ages, because I wasn't interested in underlining, you know, as these these characters change. You like, didn't okay, want to and, say the years or right, this. You, you didn't want right, to say that. Right, or like, and now yeah. I'm Josie Alter. You know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's how to give these little intentional clues to who these characters are as they age that tracks. Mm. This is like a very artistic film in the way that, you know, few films at the movie theaters really are. Like, but this is your debut feature. Was there any pause with you when you were like, I'm going to make this movie, this piece of art that isn't really commercial in the way that, you know, movies are today? At its core, at its heart, it's a film about life, you know what I mean? And about how relationships change, how our lives change. And even if, again, it is not a traditional, told in the traditional way, that folks um, allow it to wash over them and for it to be an experience, you know, and hopefully there's space for them to see moments of their own lives, you know, within the specificity of the film. That's writer and director Raven Jackson. All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt is in limited release now. Raven Jackson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Aisha. It was great. In addition, from NPR News, I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. If you are a crafter or you would like to become a crafter, then join us at City Space for an evening dedicated to homemade creations. That's Monday, November 13th. For free tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 52 degrees in Boston with some sunshine today and high around 60 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden pointed out how important it is to live your life so that you never, ever get mentioned on our show. You know how bad a first date is when it becomes a news story? (laughs) 
I'm Peter Sagal. It's too late for all the people we'll be talking about on this week's News Quiz. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Daylight saving time is over. Fix the microwave clock. President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping will meet this week at the APEC Summit in San Francisco. And what's the future of cryptocurrency after the conviction of former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried? Also, the author of the best-selling memoir, Made, is out with a new book about poverty in higher education. To go back and write through these scenes where I was just struggling to get through the day, it made me mad. It's Sunday, November 5th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made an unannounced trip into the occupied West Bank to meet the president of the Palestinian Authority, who called for an end to the war in Gaza. Blinken says he's been pushing for pauses in Israel's fight against Hamas, but not a ceasefire. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has details. In a statement, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas says he warned that a military solution will not bring security to Israel, and he described Israel's actions in Gaza as, in his words, a war of genocide and destruction. Secretary Blinken says the U.S. is committed to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for Gaza and says Palestinians must not be forcibly displaced. But throughout his latest trip, he has stressed that Israel has a right to defend itself after an unprecedented attack by Hamas last month. The State Department says Blinken and Abbas also talked about a future Palestinian state. Abbas calls the Gaza Strip an integral part of a comprehensive solution. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. The CEO of TikTok will meet with top European regulators tomorrow amid growing scrutiny of the platform in Brussels. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, EU authorities plan to question TikTok's role in the spread of disinformation related to the Israel-Hamas war. TikTok CEO Shoshi Chu is meeting with representatives of the European Commission as officials in Brussels press TikTok over how it is combating war-related falsehoods on the platform used by more than a billion people. EU regulators have also told TikTok it has a special obligation to protect teenagers from violent content under new European digital service laws. TikTok says in recent weeks, it has removed more than 500,000 videos from the war-torn region that violated its rules. But EU watchdogs are demanding more information about TikTok's plan to curb harmful war-related videos. Violating the EU's online safety law known as the Digital Services Act could trigger a fine of up to 6% of a company's global revenue. Bobby Allen, NPR News. At the Florida Republican Party's Freedom Summit last night, GOP presidential hopefuls mounted arguments for the party nominee not to be former President Donald Trump. Some comments more pointed than others. Candidate Chris Christie told booing Trump loyalists. The problem is you fear the truth. The problem is 
you want to shout down any voice that says anything different than what you want to hear. Former President Trump later took the same stage with his signature message. The whole thing is a lie. The whole election was a lie. Trump last night officially filed papers to be on Florida's primary ballot. He is not slated to participate in the next Republican president candidates debate this coming Wednesday in Miami. He has picked up major state endorsements. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. There are just 77 spots left in the state's shelter system. Once those are filled, eligible homeless families will be placed on a wait list. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports the shelter population in Massachusetts has more than doubled in the past year, and the state-funded system is running out of space and money. Governor Moore Healy says the shelter system will reach capacity when it hits 7,500 households. That is expected to happen within days. Families on the wait list will only get a spot when another family exits shelter. The state is hoping the federal government will set up large congregate sites where waitlisted families can stay until units are vacated. But so far, those do not exist. A flyer from the state tells homeless families you may return to the last safe place you stayed. Homeless advocates say the waitlist will force families to stay in unsafe situations. But an attempt to block the waitlist failed in court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Shuttle buses are replacing Orange Line MBTA service between Oak Grove and Wellington until about 2 this afternoon. The diversion allows the T and other agencies to conduct a safety training exercise. People should expect heightened activity in that stretch of the Orange Line this morning. Shuttle buses also are replacing Red Line trains today between Alewife and Kendall MIT for track work. A Cambridge philanthropist who has helped launch the political careers of dozens of women is winding down her operations. The Boston Globe reports that Barbara Lee plans to end her foundation and political office by the end of next year. Lee told the Globe she's helped elect more than 200 women in 37 states. In Massachusetts, those elected officials include Governor Maura Healey, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, and U.S. Representative Catherine Clark. It is 52 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today, a high around 60. Lows in the mid-30s tonight, tomorrow mostly cloudy, highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We're officially one month into the war in Israel and Gaza. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, almost 10,000 Palestinians in Gaza have died and tens of thousands of civilians have been displaced as the Israeli military intensifies its offensive in the Strip. This comes after Hamas fighters killed over 1,400 Israeli civilians and troops and kidnapped over 200 on October 7th. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with regional leaders last week, hoping to carve a path forward, one that avoids a wider regional conflict. And on Friday, Hassan Nasrallah, 
Leader of Lebanon's Iran-backed Hezbollah, a political and armed group, gave a speech in which he stopped short of declaring war on Israel. Nasrallah indicated that no, he would not mobilize Hezbollah for an all-out regional war. That's Emil Hokayem. He's the director and senior fellow at the International Institute of Strategic Studies. We spoke to him right after Nasrallah's speech, and he explained that this gives us an idea of how Iran is thinking about this conflict. Iran itself is unwilling to risk a regional war. It worries that if it does so, it would expose Hezbollah, which is its most formidable instrument of punishment and deterrence against Israel, while it should be preserved for a war that would threaten Iran's or the Iranian leadership's own existence. So this was definitely a step back uh, in terms of, of regional escalation. It does not mean that a regional war will not happen. Uh, much will depend on the trajectory of the fighting uh, inside Gaza. Uh, it also uh, does not mean that Hezbollah may not reconsider um, its uh, its posture. So, so when we hear warnings from top U.S. officials saying they do not want a regional war, what are we talking about here? And does the statements coming out of Hezbollah mean that there is less concern about a regional war? The U.S. is, is very concerned about a regional war because it would completely overturn uh, U.S. priorities. It would force the U.S. to dedicate significant political attention and, and military resources to the region. It would risk damaging very seriously U.S. relations with a number of, of regional states. And it would affect the trajectory of relations with, uh, uh, with Iran. Uh, the U.S. has tried to contain and deter Iran, uh, especially from developing a, a nuclear weapons capability, that objective may be threatened in case of an all-out war. The U.S. has uh, sounded quite careful in recent times. Uh, it has both sought to deter Iran and Hezbollah by deploying significant assets to the eastern Mediterranean, but it also, in conversations with uh, the press and in uh, in public speeches, indicated that they don't think that Iran was had ordered uh, the October seven attack, and that uh, the U.S. does not think that Iran itself is interested in in a regional conflict. And so, if there were a regional war, what countries and militant groups would likely be involved? It would be quite complex. Those that would be primarily uh, involved would be Israel, Iran, uh, Syria, the U.S. Uh, but in addition to that, you would have an array of, of militias in Iraq, Yemen, Syria and Lebanon that would likely jump into the mix. And Israel and Syria um, continue to exchange rockets, but this has been happening for years. So far, um, they're not saying this is related to Israel's operation in Gaza. But what do we need to understand about these two countries' um, very fraught relationship? Well, those, those two countries have fought several direct wars, um, you know, over the years. But since the Syrian civil war and the weakening of the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And Iran has sought to build a, a military uh, presence inside the country to have another front against Israel, if need be. So Israel has been keen to destroy that infrastructure over the years. 
Um, and, and this is a front that could uh, well ignite should there be a, a regional war. Iran is often named as the supporter of Hamas, but but there are others. Um, key Hamas leaders are are based in Doha, Qatar, which is a U.S. ally, um, and the group also receives support from Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Um, even though sometimes uh, they have tense relations with the U.S., so could an expanded conflict have repercussions beyond the region? At the moment, uh, there's no evidence, no suggestion that Qatar or Turkey help Hamas uh, uh, militarily or were aware of the October 7 attacks uh, or are complicit in you know, uh, Hamas's strategy. In fact, Qatar has sought to distance itself from, from Hamas. That said, yes, if there were a regional war, there would be uh, significant repercussions. You know, Qatar itself will continue to have uh, and wants a very strong relationship with the U.S. Uh, Turkey is a is a NATO member, um, and you know, is for all the the uh, the the barking uh, that comes from Ankara at times is not yet ready to break ties with. Uh, with its Western partners. Um, but the point is that uh, if a regional war starts in earnest, uh, there will be surprising effects. And this is why, uh, you know, Western diplomacy, Arab diplomacy and other uh, are mobilized to try to contain it to Gaza at the moment. The question is, if the fighting in Gaza becomes so bloody, so costly in human lives, and generates this massive humanitarian crisis, are those efforts condemned to fail because they will inflame the region regardless? That's Emil Hokayim. He is with the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Republican presidential candidates have been visiting Iowa for months ahead of the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses on January 15th. But the National Democrats did not pick Iowa to vote first in 2024. So what was a high-profile Democrat, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, doing there last night? Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters joins us with some answers. Good morning, Clay. Good morning. And I should say I almost called you Iowa just not and, and dropped the clay, but that, that would have been appropriate. That would have okay. worked. <laughs> okay, so why was Senator Fetterman in Iowa last night? So he was counter-programming the nonstop ads and attention Republicans have been giving Iowa. Fetterman was the featured speaker at the Liberty and Justice celebration. This fundraiser for the state party has been like this marquee event in past cycles ahead of the caucuses. Barack Obama had a breakthrough moment there in 2007. Four years ago, thousands packed an arena to hear from the crowded 2020 field. So Fetterman, dressed in his trademark hoodie and basketball shorts, told the audience he was sure that they were just sick of all the pandering Republicans have been doing in the state. And I don't do that. But by the way, I love ethanol. So he's joking there about one of Iowa's top commodities, gasoline made with corn. Uh, Fetterman also had a warning of sorts for the crowd. If you are a Democrat that wants to criticize and go after Joe Biden, our president, just go ahead and write a check for Trump. 
So Fetterman called out Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, who is running against Biden. The senator also took a swipe at California Governor Gavin Newsom, who has not said he's challenging President Joe Biden, but has been raising his public profile lately. And Democrats here need a lot of Iowans to caucus for Biden if they want a chance to ever be first again. Uh, Why the emphasis on Biden doing well in Iowa, especially since Democrats did strip Iowa of its first in the nation status? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty confusing, right? I mean, Iowa Democrats will still hold a caucus on January 15th. The same night as Republicans, but they're doing a caucus by mail where the results won't be released until Super Tuesday, March 5th. The DNC has said they'll reopen the nominating calendar every four years. And Rita Hart, who's chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, tells me she thinks this new system will actually increase turnout. If we have more participation, if we have more representation from all walks of life that exist here in Iowa, that just um, puts us in a better position to make that case in 2028. And every speaker at the event last night was trying to give Iowa Democrats some hope. Republicans control the governor's office, the legislature, and their last Democrat in Congress lost last year. Jordan True came to hear from Fetterman. He's a tax examiner and former military police. I'm trying to show up as a young voter with probably much more progressive views than most people in this room. And I want to help bring that change to the party. And it's not going to come if we keep abandoning it as young people. So you heard True say he's pretty progressive and he's considered actually registering as a Republican to have more of an impact in a race with higher stakes for the Republican presidential nomination with the caucuses. But he says it's important for him to stick with Democrats. What about Republicans? Where does the Iowa where does the Iowa race stand for them? So the race is still very much Donald Trump's to lose, as it's been all year. He's been coming to the state more often in the last month. And right now, we're kind of watching this race for second place among Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, There was a poll that came out this week from the Des Moines Register that showed them kind of tied at 16 percent. So that's still a pretty low number compared to what Donald Trump has among support here in the state of Iowa. So we always say Iowa is not about picking a winner, but winnowing the field of of many times a very crowded field. And I'm sure we'll see that again here in two and a half months. That's Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. You're welcome. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, Stephanie Land discusses her new book, Class, about making ends meet while going to college. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today and high around 60 degrees. And, you know, there's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live wherever you are. Get the free WBUR app today. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. 
I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. The Biden administration continues to call for humanitarian pauses in Israeli military operations in Gaza as the fighting enters its fifth week. Israeli strikes followed a brutal rampage by Hamas killers in Israel early last month. Israel says 1,400 people were killed and 241 people were taken hostage. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is stipulating the U.S. is calling for a pause in fighting to facilitate the delivery of urgently needed humanitarian supplies. Cindy McCain, who heads the World Food Program, says it's critical that assistance move into the region right now, saying parents are not sure they can feed their children today. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. That's from an ad for FTX featuring Larry David. The cryptocurrency trading platform is defunct after collapsing a year ago. Its CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, was convicted Thursday on seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. Molly White is a fellow at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab and the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So you attended Bankman-Fried's trial as someone who researches and comments on and criticizes cryptocurrency. Uh, Did anything from the trial surprise you? Well, I was surprised to see Sam Bankman-Fried take the stand to testify in his own defense. That is a very unusual thing to see in white-collar cases like this. And most of his testimony involved him saying he couldn't recall the things that the prosecutor was asking him about. But generally speaking, he was trying to make the same claims that he has made since the collapse of FTX, which is that it was all just a big mistake. He wasn't deeply involved in the day-to-day operations of Alameda Research, which was a sister trading firm to FTX, and that um, things had gone poorly and he had regrets, but there was no crime involved. So, I mean, FTX collapsed a, a year ago, but cryptocurrency as a thing is is still very much alive. And, and for those of us who don't follow the industry closely, what do you think explains the enduring appeal? Well, I think it doesn't take much to keep something like cryptocurrency alive. You know, as long as there are two people willing to trade something, there's a market for it. But Overall, the industry has gone through a pretty massive downturn since this time last year and even maybe two years ago. And I think it's really struggled since then to overcome the reputational damage that came from both the collapse of FTX, but also some other major failures in the industry where, 
you know, massive lenders or cryptocurrency brokers have all collapsed in the span of only months and, and a year or so. If FTX had been run the way Bankman Freed said he was running it, transparently and ethically, you know, kind of pioneeringly, um, would it have survived? Is the issue the theory of cryptocurrency or is it the practice of cryptocurrency? Well, I think it could have survived had everything been above board, although I don't think it would have been quite as lucrative as uh, they at least claim to be. I do think that, you know, the the challenge with cryptocurrency is in an industry that is not well regulated, much of the business relies on taking advantage of the gap between the regulated financial markets and an unregulated sort of wild west. And so the more these companies try to play by the rules and comply with regulations, the less of a business opportunity there is especially because the underlying asset doesn't have much in the way of inherent value. You know, there is no physical asset backing it. There's no real revenue stream. And so a lot of the industry thus far has really been predicated on this sort of regulatory arbitrage. And the more people are willing to go outside of the bounds, you know, the more profitable it is. And so I think that's why we've seen so many flagrant frauds and abuses of customer funds and things like that within the industry is that it is very lucrative to do so. And the regulators have been somewhat asleep at the wheel. So what's the future of cryptocurrency, in your opinion, uh, for the next year or so and and in the long run? I think it really depends on what we see from a regulatory standpoint. You know, there have been attempts by regulators to crack down on the industry. Legislators are beginning to pay more attention. And so depending on what companies are required to do from a regulatory standpoint, it really could change the track of the industry, which again, I think has flourished to the extent that it has because of the lack of regulation. And so If these companies are required to play by the same rules as the traditional financial system, I think it could really stifle a lot of the profit that has come in the industry and also a lot of the fraud, fortunately. That's Molly White. She researches cryptocurrency and writes the blog Web3 is going just great. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Beginning next weekend, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Organization, or APEC, will hold their leaders' meeting in San Francisco. Tens of thousands of attendees from 21 countries will descend on the city to talk about regional economics, trade, infrastructure, and much more. KQED's Rachel Myro joins us now to set the stage for us. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So we gave a brief introduction, but tell us a little bit more about what APEC is. It's basically an annual economic summit with lots of government officials, CEOs, and academics. They're all from the Pacific region, so not just China and Japan, the biggies, but also Mexico and Chile, to name just a few. Now, according to APEC, there are going to be 21 heads of state attending, including President Joe Biden, China's President Xi Jinping is expected to be there too, and hundreds of reporters. So what's the big headline this year? Are there any major policy announcements expected? 
Well, Aisha, these aren't trade talks per se. We're not expecting a draft document for Congress to sign. This is more of an opportunity for a lot of mid-level government officials and academics to discuss collective strategies, to address everything from climate change to China. Now, there's an agreement in principle for Biden and Xi to meet. That's without a doubt the biggest story coming out of APEC this year. It wouldn't be the first time they've met as presidents and in person, but there are a lot of tensions between the two countries on trade, foreign policy, human rights, and other issues. That makes people in politics and business very nervous. So what's San Francisco expecting to get out of this as the whole city? Well, these days, Silicon Valley dominates the news headlines to such an extent, I think it's easy to forget that one of San Francisco's biggest economic drivers is actually tourism. The mayor's office anticipates APEC will generate something like 55,000 hotel stays and more than $50 million in revenue. APEC is like a huge coup for San Francisco, which uh, I think no surprise is struggling to overcome something some people have called a doom loop narrative dominating national headlines. The homelessness crisis, open air drug dealing, major retail outlets abandoning downtown. I mean, it, it sounds like this could be a PR liability for the city. Uh, quite possibly. Uh, you know, this is a massive uh, PR liability potentially sitting right outside the Moscone Center where APEC is going to be held. City law enforcement and visiting security details like the Secret Surface are planning to set up a so-called exclusion zone in a four-block radius around the center. That's expected to keep out or reduce the numbers of local homeless people in the immediate vicinity of the conference. Um, I imagine the mayor's office is worried about a lot of foreign journalists who are going to be a signed stories about what happens when they walk out of those conference halls and onto the streets nearby, uh, because that could be one of the major takeaways from APEC, San Francisco's many issues seen up close. KQED's Rachel Myro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Wu-Tang Clan's debut album was released 30 years ago. It introduced a whole new style of hip-hop, sampling dialogue from kung fu movies and melodies from obscure 1960s soul tracks. On All Things Considered, later today, we'll revisit that album, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, as it enters its fourth decade. Listen to your favorite public radio station on your smartphone's web browser, smart speaker, or radio. As the conflict in the Middle East continues, we're taking a moment now to hear from two teachers, both worried, both scared. One, Karen Neuberger, is in Tel Aviv. There is no point in telling students you have nothing to be afraid of. That would be unfair and insincere. The other teacher is in Janine in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. I'm uh, so sad about uh, what's happening with uh, these uh, students. they confuse about what's happening. Why? Iyad Aosuki teaches computer science and coding to middle school boys in Janine. Over the years, he's won many awards for his work. 
I am interested to spread coding in my country, Palestine, and other countries too. But the last month, he says, has been hard. Sometimes uh, we opening schools, sometimes teaching with uh, strategy distance learning. Sometimes uh, black day, no learning. He says his school checks each day to see if it's safe for students to come to school. If the Israeli army is not near, the school is open. If they are close by, students learn remotely. And then there are days when there isn't any electricity, so there's no school at all. Iyad Al-Suki switches to Arabic to explain how the Israeli response in Gaza has affected his students in the West Bank. They ask, will this continue? How long will it continue? Is it possible this happens to our schools in Janine, that they get destroyed? Because they see that most of the people who are being killed are students and young children. Many have nightmares, so we keep them busy with activities like drawing and using their words and projects in the computer labs to let them express themselves. Aosuki says all students deserve the best. He and his colleagues are working to help their students through these very difficult times. We try to grow hope in them. There are countries and people who believe in justice, and they will help Palestine and our freedom. Seventy miles away, Karen Newberger teaches English and diplomacy at Israeli State High School in Tel Aviv. She says she's heard lots of anger in her classes over the October 7th attack. Some students, she says, can't understand why Israel is not using more force to wipe out Hamas. There is understandably a wish for a very quick solution. What I am trying to send is a very, very clear message that Israel is a country and a democratic one, which means it has a leadership and the leadership is supposed to take well-informed decisions. A quick solution may sound very appealing. Um, It is probably not a solution that will work in the long run. Over the last month, Newberger says students have been shifting between remote learning and in-person. Only so many can fit into bomb shelters at a time. And the school is having to use those shelters. You can be in the middle of class and all of a sudden the sirens are sounding and you have one minute and ten seconds to make it to the shelter. This has been going on for some time and it is becoming a routine thing. You drop everything, you stop everything, and you start running. And it doesn't happen once a day. It happens a few times a day. Karen Newberger says she's worried this conflict will continue to drag out and that her students will bear the emotional scars as a result. She hopes they can be resilient. In short, I just wish for them a normal life. One that is taken for granted by so many millions in the Western world. That's Karen Newberger, a teacher in Tel Aviv. We also heard from Iyad Al-Suki, who teaches in the Israeli-occupied city of Jenin in the West Bank. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music.
There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Post-pandemic tourism has made a comeback in Japan this year, so much so that the government has had to announce measures to ease what it calls over-tourism. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports on the special challenges faced by one of Japan's most iconic landmarks. Around the world, Mount Fuji is a symbol of Japan. Some Japanese venerate it as a god. Artists have immortalized it in works such as the 36 views of Mount Fuji by 19th century painter and printmaker Hokusai. Halfway up the mountain, cars and buses load and unload and climbers pause on their way up or down. At the end of the climbing season this fall, Toshikazu Fukuhara is resting his weary legs after a 13-hour round trip. It felt like Ginza, he says, referring to Tokyo's glitzy shopping district. People were shoulder to shoulder. An estimated more than 160,000 people climbed Mount Fuji during this year's climbing season. In 2020, no climbers were allowed due to the pandemic. As Japan's tourist industry has gone from bust to boom, residents have been reminded of their love-hate relationship with tourists. Compared to last year, this year, very crowded condition. Keiji Izuka is a guide on Mount Fuji. When you do have that many climbers, what sort of problems does it cause? Many people, they want to see sunlight at the top. So near the summit, so many climbers, they are making queue. So if they make a long period, they will be hypothermia. That means that they cannot move again. So it could be disastrous. Japanese call them bullet climbers. They summit Mount Fuji overnight. When they get in trouble, some have to be rescued by Masanobu Sakagami, who heads a police mountain rescue team in Shizuoka Prefecture on the south side of the mountain. It takes a lot of effort to go up and down the mountain and rescue people, and the survivors suffer a lot of pain during that time. He says his prefecture saw 63 accidents during this year's climbing season, up from 50 last season. Most of the cases, he says, involve climbers getting lost, falling, or suffering exhaustion, altitude sickness, or hypothermia. Sakagami's advice to visitors? Do not prioritize summiting Mount Fuji over your own life. The north side of Mount Fuji sits in Yamanashi Prefecture. Governor Kotaro Nagasaki says that over-tourism is polluting the natural environment and stressing the local community. He fears the mountain could lose its status as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. If I had to sum up the current situation, I'd say Mount Fuji is screaming. The government has proposed replacing the main road up the mountain with a light railway. But many of the visitors seem less concerned than the officials about the crowding. Luke Robison is from Brisbane, Australia. Towards the summit where it gets quite steep, it was pretty busy, but other than that, there's plenty of room to pass on coming down, going up. Sounds like it did not spoil your experience no, at all. We, we expected it, we knew that it was going to be busy. Probably wasn't as busy as I actually thought it was going to be. Robison comments that Mount Fuji is quite commercialized, although he admits that without all the way stations, shelters and toilets, many visitors wouldn't be able to make it. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Mount Fuji, Japan. Thank you.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This is an important moment to use extra caution behind the wheel. Daylight saving time ended at 2 a.m. And in the past, this annual transition to standard time has typically led to an increase in car crashes in Massachusetts. A AAA Northeast spokesperson says the most dangerous stretch of time involves people driving home from work. He says state crash data show a 51% increase in crashes in the 5 p.m. hour and in that same hour, a 240% increase in pedestrian crashes. The Hingham Educators Association is calling for additional safety protocols in the district. Last week, a substitute teacher was arrested during the school day on trespassing and other charges. Among other measures, the association suggests improving communication across schools about underperforming substitutes. The teachers also say they were disturbed by the superintendent's delay in sharing the news with the community. This afternoon in Foxborough, the Patriots face the Washington Commanders. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, a high around 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing November 10th through December 10th at The Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy, from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Veterans Day honors those who've served in the U.S. military. A new film asks three Muslim military chaplains to talk about their experience. I wear the uniform of this country, and wherever I go, thank you, sir, for your service. But when he's not in uniform? I'm a terrorist from the Middle East. How social tensions inform their spiritual work on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again Monday morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Author Stephanie Land has called poverty an invisible and isolating experience. In her first book, Made, we followed her journey as a poor single mother who cleans rich people's homes to make ends meet. And in her second, called Class, she adds a new challenge, going to college to fulfill her dream of becoming a writer. Stephanie Land joins us now from Missoula, Montana. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Your first book, Made, was a breakout success. It was adapted for Netflix and was on Obama's summer reading list for 2019, which is a huge deal. What inspired you to write a sequel? The part of my story that I really think is the most important, I guess, was that I got out of a bad situation and got myself to an environment and a community that was supportive and went on to graduate from college with a degree that I had originally set out to do. I had a lot of people trying to convince me to basically get a job that would 
put me in an administrative assistant type of position um, to have that sort of job security. And I decided to go for it and, and to try, at least try, to be a writer. You talk about this so much in the book. You know, you're a single mother. And so to make the decision to go to college to be a writer, which can be very up and down, um, like, what do you think it is about yourself that made you have the faith to go for this dream when you're really just, you know, making ends meet and struggling to do that? Um, for me, being a writer was something that I've wanted since I was 10 years old. And I knew that I needed to at least try. I knew that if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't be very happy <laughs> going forward with my life. Reading your story and it, like, I mean, I think about all the women in my family who, whether the man was there or not, uh, were taking care of business. Like a great aunt that had to raise 10 kids by herself. My grandmother cleaned houses. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking of all these women, they're living in poverty, they're also black, and they don't get the chance to tell their stories and they don't get the book deal or the Netflix deal. What do you think of, of those women who don't get to tell their stories, but are living this every day? Um, I, I recognized pretty early on that people were paying attention to my story because it was a very palatable type of poor person story. I'm, I'm a, a white person who graduated college. I'm a quote unquote success now. Like I'm the rags to riches story that a lot of people like to listen to. And I had a conversation with a, a photographer actually, who was a black man. And we were talking about this and I, I said, you know, they're, they're listening to me because I'm, I'm white. They should be listening to people of color, not me. And and he said, but they are listening to you. And if they listen to you, then they might listen to other people. And I try to keep this hope within me, kind of, that, um, that the more personal stories are shared, then perhaps more empathy will grow. And that might turn into compassion. When you were writing this story about yourself or like going back through it, were there things that surprised you when you look back on it? I, I think I was surprised at how angry I felt for myself and for the time period and, and what I had to go through, um, for how lonely I was, for how much shame I felt. I am almost 10 years out from my graduation from college. So it's been a while and I have, you know, of course had more success and I'm, I'm in a much more privileged situation now. And I have a different sense of normalcy to go back and write through these scenes where I was just struggling to get through the day. It made me mad. And I, I wasn't really allowed to feel mad. I wasn't really allowed to feel anything um, when I was in it. I didn't have time. Mm. 
I mean, and another part of that that you delve into, which I mean, I think is is such a big part of poverty, is this idea that people feel like if you're poor, you don't deserve to have anything. Well, it's poor people can't have nice things. And I have heard that over and over. I mean, when I first started writing about being on food stamps, I was I was still on food stamps. And I looked at the comment sections and almost everything that people got upset about was that I was a poor person and therefore I should not have a nice thing. When I wrote Made, I purposely left in a couple of things that I knew people would get mad about. One was this scene where I'm like fighting to get organic milk from a WIC check. And another is I bought myself a $200 diamond ring. It was almost comical, like how people would get upset about that. So in this book, I just kind of went for it and, and threw everything in there. Like I'm going out, I'm behaving like a college student at some points in the book. And one lady on Goodreads is upset that I was buying my daughter ice cream so much. And I have grown to kind of enjoy doing that <laughs> because it says so much more about the person who is actually upset than it does about me. That's Stephanie Lan. Her new book class is out this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. With the festive season on its way, jazz composer Sean Mason is thinking about past holidays spent with his family. You know, I remember my grandmother dancing in the house all the time. We have a lot of great pictures and VCR videos of, of her dancing. He says his grandmother and mother would play Ray Charles and Duke Ellington records during their get-togethers. At the time, Mason was more interested in sports, but that changed with age. At 13, he committed to playing piano. He attended college a few years later at UNC as a music major and later went to Juilliard. His debut album, The Southern Suite, is out now. Sean Mason joins us now from New York. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Aisha. So your album is entirely instrumental, but the music does a lot of talking. Like, what story or stories are being told through this album? Well, first, it's a celebration of life. And, and I wanted to wrap the listener as if I'm giving them a hug. The, the album is truly embodying Southern hospitality. Mm. But like anything in the South, it's, 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 it's very layered. You know, it, it, it's also a personal story that, that deals with these kind of two opposing visions or forces, if you will, traditionalism and innovation. When you say that it's a celebration of life, but then you say it's about the, the kind of the conflict between like, you know, that earlier kind of swing, I could see it on like an older TV show. But then this is also a, a modern album. So how do you deal with that juxtaposition? What I mean by celebration of life is one, just at least kind of coming to some kind of agreement of what life is. I mean, every time somebody says that statement, for some reason, the sentiment becomes extremely overly optimistic. And for me, I, I wanted to be a candid celebration of life. 
which means honoring pleasure and suffering. Disagreements we may have is celebrating different points of view. The, just the differences of musical styles that I grew up listening to, appreciation of our ancestors, but also the narrative forward and pushing the music forward. The instruments you use, the piano, horns, percussion, they seem to kind of have their own motifs that recur in different songs. Each of the instruments is kind of like a character, like with their own points of view. Yeah, each instrument in, in, in their voice is living because mm -hmm. there's actual human beings playing the instruments. And in most music today, there, there's not human beings playing the instrument. And that's not a judgment, it's just an observation. And with this album, since I had the opportunity to showcase human beings playing instruments, I wanted to make sure that each instrument you can follow throughout the entire album. And each human being, it's, it's like a conversation. And highlighting the life force behind that instrument was, was something important for me. So there was a lot of polyphony, basically meaning the, the harmony of different voices playing different things together. Polyphony was important in New Orleans music. You hear it on the street for Second Line. And it was originally, it's most known for the clarinet, the trombone, and the trumpet in New Orleans style music where they're all marching, playing marching band music in the streets of New Orleans, but they're all playing different things. But it it, it, it sounds really good together. I mean, you, you listen to the early Louis Armstrong records and you hear that clearly. Okay. And and so how have the, the, the South and the Black church shaped your sound. I know you grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, you know, I grew up in Durham. What is the influence of that place in your um, music? Well, the South taught me the importance of the blues. To me, the blues is what makes us human. It's, it's approaching life in, in a very difficult way, but to, to keep my head up in a certain way. There was just so many struggling experiences of, of growing up where I grew up. The early musical experience I had taught me how to keep my head up through these hard times, through the wisdom of my grandmothers, the wisdom of the church mothers, the wisdom of everybody from the South, that things are messed up, but we, we continue to push on. And that blues feeling is what I want to embody in all the music I make, um, to, to have the essence of the blues. That's so beautiful, um, your song Lullaby. I, this is a song about your grandmother? The, yeah, the, the, the impulse for writing it came from my, my grandmother's passing, but it's a song about life, but that, the impulse for me writing it definitely was, was, was from that, that place that I was in, um, a very nuanced emotion. And you can hear it in the trumpet. I asked him to play with more of a breathier sound throughout the whole course of the song. There's no solos. I wanted to make sure we we maintained uh, an equilibrium and a balance of presence. The whole objective of this song is to be more present in where we are and to breathe. Um, and that's the main themes of this song. And, and being able to 
to, to deal with that grief in a very healthy way um, and to acknowledge it and, and to move past it and to, and to learn. Mm-hmm. Well, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 25. So you young. I mean, you a baby. Um, so, <laughs> um, I mean, as you've spoken about so so eloquently, you know, jazz has this very rich history, you know, in the U.S., you know, going back to New Orleans in the 19th century. You have this honor and respect and, and a really uh, a focus on the history of this but it seems like that's so different than now where everybody's kind of focused on what's new and what's the latest and and you know that's what everyone's focused on yeah i mean the the disguise of innovation is attractive because you don't really have to study there's nothing to to build upon there's no foundation you can say anything is innovative i, I just grew up in a way that i was i was taught to respect my elders that came before me whether those elders are musical elders who are dead like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, you, you pick, you know, you name your, your pick. I, I do want to study history. I do want to know what's going on. And, and, and truly, I, I care about the integrity and the, the deepness and the soul of the music itself. I think I'm just grateful for the gift to listen to a song today and somehow connect it to Cab Calloway, for example, what Coleman Hawkins was doing and then what Bach was doing in the 18th century. Somehow I'm able to see these kind of through lines and I wanted to make those through lines evident through my compositions and and the album itself. One of the last songs on your album is called Closure. Um, Tell us about that song, but also what closure have you found? Closure is really just a gospel song. Speaking about Bach again, it's also kind of winking an eye at at, at Baroque music and, and contrapuntal music. The closure I found is a deeper appreciation of what it means to be human. It, it's just an interesting time wherein it seems like we're going in a way where human life is being devalued and the, the, the human expression is being devalued and the ability for somebody to express themselves uh, is under so much scrutiny right now, especially musically. And, and, and this, this album is just a, me putting my foot down for the fight for humanity, the fight for human expression. musician and uh, another uh, North Carolina uh, native, (laughs) Sean Mason, talking about his debut album, The Southern Suite. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate In addition, from NPR News, I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a great Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. And tomorrow, start your Monday with WBUR's Morning Edition. You'll hear about the changes underway in the belief that life has three stages, learning, earning, and retiring. Now, many people are discovering life can begin again in their 60s or 70s or later. You'll get surprising and inspiring stories. That's tomorrow morning here on WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. In the spring of 2016, a wildfire ignited in the forest of northern Alberta that would forever change the lives of the people who lived in its path. The towering inferno turned 2,500 homes to ash and gave us a hint of what's to come. We haven't seen what climate change has in store for us in the 21st century. That's here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.